Unlike the two dumb nuts that you are, I actually have some class and quality. It wasn't forthcoming in this episode. I'm not gonna show class and quality to a piece of shit. another day episode oh no <laughs> come on guys this is this is like Carly's favorite Bond film of all time show, uh-huh. some li- show a little respect uh-huh, uh-huh. Stays here. What, what is this abomination of a claim here <laughs> well there was a t- time in good old Vitoden days uh, uh, when, uh, uh, when, when the film was uh, coming up uh, uh, <laughs> And, and, and some some hot takes, some, some previews, <laughs> some news stories were made, and eventually a review. Uh-huh. <laughs> Things were said by you, Kari. So, yep. Somebody's been snooping those old, good old, good old files. Ah. Ne- ne- never forget, never forgive. I did go through it <laughs> myself also before we started reco- recording, and... Uh, some things have changed. Not all, not all. I maintain quite a lot there, actually. But let's see what happens in this episode. My co-host is Henrik, who is extremely pissed off that I'm late over an hour from the recording schedule. And our guest is the Tom Frankland, our Bond expert, giving his expertise in Die Another Day. Hey. 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 Good talk. Let's have this discussion again some other time. No. So what obviously happened was that I came from Poland to Finland today and naturally the Finnish trains were late. Well, the train broke down before Pasila, so I was in the middle of the tracks for extra 20 minutes. I forgive you. Yeah, it's not that bad, seriously. But this, this is like the third episode we are trying to push out on in one week. At some point I started to feel the fatigue. Yeah. Welcome to the Philly Club. <clears throat> anyway, let's get going here. So, Die Another Day, the swan song of Pierce Brosnan, his fourth James Bond film. And we did cover Goldeneye, his first one, which is quite universally considered his best one out of his four-film run. Tomorrow Never Dies was the second film starring Pierce Brosnan from 1997, directed by Roger Spottiswood. A terrible film. And then we had The World Is Not Enough from 1999, Directed by Michael Apted, quite not apted to the task, but yeah, as it as the film itself says, close but no cigar. And now Die Another Day, helmed by Lee Tamahori in 2002. For I hear the bugle blow to call me where I would not go, and the guns begin the song. Soldier, fly or stay for long. Comrade, if to turn and fly, made a soldier never die. Fly I would, for... Who would not? This sure no pleasure to be shot. But since the man that runs away lives to die another day. And this is a poem from A.E. Hausman, from which this title, title of the film is originating from. 
Yeah, which is a piece that much like also the quote that the art of war from Shang-Chu, the makers of the script also did not read. You mean the quote near the end of the movie? Well, I I, I mean this this poetry quote, which is the title of the film and, well, the bare mentioning of the book. Yeah, interesting book. Not very scientific, but there are some good ground rules, I'd say. All right, where do you want to pick it up from? We have Lee Tamahori. Who's Lee Tamahori, Henrik? He's the director of Die Another Day. Correct. Also known for Once Were Warriors. Had pretty good 90s and then terrible noughties. Also director of XXX2, the next level, if somebody remembers it. Yes. So he's skilled in action films, to a degree. Die Another Day was the kind of a make-it-or-break-it situation as far as the producers and some fans saw it at the time. Like, they had already made very formulaic films, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough. And now Die Another Day uh, was kind of something that you were trying to do during the age of, I guess, XXX films and stuff like that. So they, they wanted to modernize it, change it. Spice it up a little bit. And after all, it was the 20th film in the series and the 40th anniversary of the series. So they felt that they have to mix it up a little bit. And they did, to a degree. And uh, let's get to it. This wasn't really that much mixing up as this was an act of desperation trying to keep the franchise still relevant in the early noughties. Well, desperation or not, this is a series that keeps constantly ups- updating itself. And this is one of those cl- very clear moments. You have these moments, as we have, as we have talked about at Nozim in the past. There are films like The Spy Who Loved Me, Goldfinger, which changed everything and kind of set this down the, the, the how to make James Bond films. Period. Interesting uh, tryouts like On Her Majesty's Secret Service, For Your Eyes Only. This is a film that returned to the little bit of a grittier film after the catastrophe, what which was Moonraker, <laughs> at least for some of us. Hey. Hello. But this wasn't so much trying to to reshape the formulas. This was uh, this was an attempt to try to kind of address the competition that has had arose around the Bond franchise. This is this isn't any kind of reimagining of of the character or even the franchise or anything that this is merely trying to look what is threatening us at the moment and trying to do pretty much the same thing. Because the coming point to Die Another Day is uh, pretty much was that the kind of a pop culture zeitgeist had changed. There had most of it, or I'm guessing that this is a result of the end of the world, the end is nigh panic that was coming from, from when we were reaching the millennium. And the early 2000s, and after millennium, after seeing that the world actually didn't end with JK, the g- g- kind of a whole whole way to address pop culture and the whole whole kind of a mental atmosphere that we had started to shift more into well the extreme territory. We started to look look and take more things from the 90s, the extreme mentality, which are the rise of of extreme sports, raw was war once again, and well, everything was trying to be a party. I, I 
kind of compensate the fears and, and panic that we had experienced previously. And this led into the rise of the uh, also the extreme action films like like the Triple X franchise that you mentioned, like like Torque, like Fast and Furious or or Extreme Orbs. But basically films that all, all had the same core conceit. There is a secret agent or there is some kind of extreme biker or something like that. Sometimes they are thieves, sometimes they are the good guys, but they always use some form of extreme sports to, to deal with the situation, to rise on top of adversaries. And the Triple X franchise had kind of come out as a, as a James Bond challenger before dying another day. And the Bond franchise had been challenged before. There had been the Italian spy films, which were done cheaply, but who were something that were pretty strongly aping the Bond franchise. There had also been the spy comedies, like If the Looks Good Kill and, and films like that, but none of those had really been stro- strong, good challengers for the Bond. But during the early 2000s, because of the change in the pop culture zeitgeist, the thing, things started to look more dire for for Bond. And even though it's easy to laugh at today, but back in those days, there actually was a real discussion going on if Bond had kind of a, had, it, had its day as a, as a secret agent, as a movie character. And if, if Bond had become too stale and too stiff, and if if the Bond era altogether would kind of be over, and if if Triple X franchise would actually topple Bond as the as the audience's go-to spy film franchise. Not only that, there was also Jason Bourne series which had picked up. So it was clear. Ja- that Jason Jason Bourne was a sleeper hit, if if anything. It it did become prominent, but when when porn identity came out, everybody nobody was following the production of porn identity that closely. Nobody actually took it into consideration. It was a film that kind of sneaked into the theaters and then made the bank and basically robbed the discussion and ended up yeah. becoming the franchise that kind of changed the spy film genre altogether. Yeah, the Jason Bourne style is addressed in Casino Royale, but nevertheless uh, the point being that the zeitgeist of the films, as you said, had changed and there was a lot of competition in arena, in films in general like the Lord of the Rings and what have you. So they needed to update themselves, but the fact of the matter is that this is also like a celebratory film, so they are having a little bit of more fun here. There's a lot of references to the old films, etc, etc. So it's a it's a mixture of things, but anyone who had seen the Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough films before this one in the franchise can say that, yeah, this franchise needs something new, some kind of a uh, new ignition, some new injection into it to keep it going. This is the attempt. And still, still there is not enough maneuverability also for the director to do what he wants to do. In the case of Lita Mahori, though, it would be kind of a good thing, as we will find out. I'm I'm not necessarily sharing your opinion there. 
Well, you should, because Lita Mahori is here to shake up the, the franchise as well, but I feel that he doesn't quite get bond. It's starting to be so self-parody at this moment, with all those one-liners, and just making it very um, comic-like. Which is well, but just... Bond have become comic-like over yeah, yeah, yeah. the Brosnan era, and the the, fra- the and the constant one-liners and Bond's dialogue being nothing but but puns and one-liners. It it already that's what was happens the case. here. No, that's what happens now here. Yeah, it was already the case. You they 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 Not were all, noxious and all over the place already in Tomorrow Never Dies. Sure, and not well, to this well, extent. Also, right. also with, with, with the word is not enough. So, anything else or should we go to scene by scene? <clears throat> I guess not, thank you. Continuing on. So, there was a strong rumor that the film would have the title Beyond the Eyes. This title, the Flick Lab can also confirm, was never a working title, but there are some strong rumors that sometimes circulate and then they suddenly become facts. It was never a working title. What was true, though, that there were some character named James Gala Brand became Miranda Frost, etc. And in the film they went to the Back to the Moonraker novel in many ways. If anyone has seen Diamonds Are Forever, you can immediately see, you know, the, the, the similarities between having a satellite that is uh, shooting lasers down at Earth and burning things. Uh, there is the use of diamonds for the satellite, once again. Diamonds in general, as a plot device. Diamonds, which is uh, kind of the MacGuffin. Mm. Gun barrel. Yeah, that flying bullet. Yep. Like, feels like it was done because they had no better ideas to, to shake the franchise at this moment. A CGI bullet coming through the screen. This was a unique, a unique gun barrel. Uh, this was. Pierce Brosnan said that he would like to reshoot his gun barrel footage. Unfortunately, he never got to do that or explore any of those different directions that he wanted to do in the future of the franchise. Well, he had four goes and uh, three of the films were abysmal. What can you do? And then you're just in practice kicked out of the franchise without further explanation. But such is the film business sometimes. It's about the numbers. It's a harsh world. Hmm. Henrik, any thoughts on 3D CGI bullet flying through the screen? Yeah, it looks absolutely horrible. And it's it, 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 once again, it's, it's the first title of the, of the franchise at this point being afraid of of its own future and its chances to continue. Because this is nothing nothing if not once again an attempt to be hip, an attempt to be extreme so that you're gonna somehow sell your film to the kids and, and teens. And it, it all just becomes uh, out as cringeworthy. Nevertheless, I would say that, that, that this is more of a Lee Tamahori direction than anything else. Him just wanting to play around, like I said, in a very comical fashion throughout the film. This, I, I, I would say, according... this, more, more, more than Tamahori, this is once again the situation playing against the film. That they kind of a constant need to somehow be more Xander Gage than Xander Gage was in Triple X. Tomahori himself this, this, said this that is not this this is not in any way any kind of a directorial vision. This is only, just pure this is this is fear. 
and pure desperation. This is you seeing boogeymen, boogeymen's and you reading too many news stories about, well, will the franchise survive the new extreme wave of action movies? And then you becoming convinced that no, no, we don't, unless we also somehow become extreme action movie franchise. The only known data here is that Tamahore planned this to be only the 40th anniversary thing, to just have a little bit of fun this, and not to return this into any future installments. So kind of a one-off thing. What you said could be as equally true. We, as far as I know, know only this for a fact. When it comes to the celebration and all, all, all that jazz, the only parts where I see the, fra- the film trying to celebrate the franchise are in the countless and obnoxious callbacks to the previous movies, which will really get in your face once they start to show up. But let's start to surf towards North Korea. <clears throat> so surfers doing uh, surf break known as Jaws in Pahi, in Maui, Hawaii. Shoresuch taken near Cadiz in Spain and Nukway in Cornwall, UK. Oh, really? And studio, yeah. Mixture of many, many things. It wasn't North Korea? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, surfing the North Korea might be the dumbest and most ineffective way to sneak into the country. What are you talking about? It would give the absolute realisticity. Uh, but basically, logically wise, it would be completely... like It, it would be really illogical to try to surf in, in the North Korea. Come on, come on. Are you suggesting that there are no crazy waves like that? And I, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that, that you can't get wave time. You can't get enough waves to actually surf into North Korea from any other continent or in, even even from South Korea like the like the distance is too too long which means that you would either have to swim most of the way in which case you would tire yourself out or then you would have to be dropped from some something like a low altitude airplane or something like that and if you are taking that route, then why don't you just, you know, fly near North Korea and just drop off? Because it's hip and cool. Yeah, pre- precisely, because it's the only way to get into the Xander zone. Mm. And you also have to wait for the perfect weather as well. And they did. They have did have a two-day filming window to get the waves just right. <laughs> In North Korea. Wow. And that is <laughs> that, that is my friend Jeppe. Hello, Jeppe. Welcome to the show. Uh, unfortunately, what they could, couldn't wait was for Piers Brosnan to get any more younger because the problems with, with Brosnan start to show up here on the surfing scene or right after the actual surfing ends and they reach, reach a shore where you pretty soon you notice that Brosnan is is actually much bigger than his surfing counterparts, and he's also much older. Yeah, mm. so? So, uh, basically, it's it's a bigger and older guy hanging out with the, with the kids. It, it's, I thought, it's starting to become you know, the, the Steve Buscemi situation. I thought you <laughs> Hello, would... Hello, fellow kids. I thought you would first attack the moment when Brosnan's bond goes on the shore. Psst. 
because that is absolutely hilarious. But Brosnan in this film is in the shape of his life. I think he is in better condition than in Goldeneye. So if we are going to go take him surfing in North Korea, this is the time to do it. I don't know. I, at this point, Brosnan is also much older than he was in Goldeneye. Psst. Like physical shape be damned. Psst. It might be, might be that Brosnan has been doing some lifts and running the treadmill, but still, like, at some point you just have to admit that the man's getting old. Not really. He's getting some gray hairs there. But yeah, he did... He definitely did get visibly older in this quite a short period of time, from 95 to 2002. So yeah, they get to the shore, and then they get to the guy who is trying to deliver the diamonds for the North Koreans. But uh, of course, Bond takes assumes the role of this smuggler, and uh, they take control of the whole operation. Fly with the helicopter to the North Korean military base in the DMZ, and the The base, this is uh, shot in Aldershot. Not North Korea? That's right. The environment, I would suppose, is kind of fine. Can look very North Korean. But there are some things. For example, the color grading. It's just too much. It's too manufactured. Because you can see that the colors are almost non-existent. It's very low color template. And uh, it's very, 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 very cold colors. To make, of course, North Korea look like this very uh, uncomfortable place. And the colors only get back to the film to a normal level in when Bond is taken back to... They are outside and there is this club, Hong Kong club. So, uh, talk about the most unrealistic North Koreans ever put on film. The script is done by someone who doesn't have the first idea about North Korea. And throughout the film, North Korea is depicted as some kind of a technologically highly advanced country. Everything is top-notch quality. General Moon and Zhao are, in, they are oozing in their character. Their character traits are something that look like they have been learned in the West. Well, that could be the case, but I don't know, Henrik. Do you buy these guys as North Koreans? Um, no, but I, I don't also buy them as bad guys. Not to mention, of course, they speak perfect English, but that's another story. Yeah, but but once again, the, the, the way how the film tries to address this one, or this or is the explanation that, I don't know for Zhao, but at least Moon was sent to the West to get the Western education, which is which is something for, he, for what his father blames kind of for, for the moral ruinification of his son. Yes. But Henrik, show me the diamonds. Show me the weapons. Movie Katwa. And the ports get up and they start demonstrating the hovercrafts. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan's uh, five-year-old son was at the set. <laughs> and, uh, the conversation went something like this. Like, hey, what did you think of that? What did you think of that? A Brosnan talking about his performance. And then the kid goes, are the cars all right? Yeah, the cars are all right. Can we go see the cars? Yes, we can go see the cars. And that was his five-year-old son's probably only chance to see his dad play James Bond. Oh, well. Cars, cars. Yeah, well, I I would have also been more interested about the cars. <laughs> I mean, come on, we are talking about Diana Day here. <laughs> But this scene, this, this whole opening scene, 
has great action. It has it has great motion. The 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 how how it kind of fluidly uh, mo- moves forward. For example, if you compare it to the world, it's not enough. The the action scenes are notoriously sluggish. There is no flow to it. It looks like it's done by somebody who has no experience with action scenes whatsoever, and that's what Michael Apted was. He was working on TV drama series, so kind of a well, we got the drama side, but we didn't get the action side in that film. But but the flow is pretty much the only thing you get in in this film's action scenes because the logic is going straight out of the window. Okay, tell me about the logic, Henrik. Well, what what to say about logic? Uh, I don't know. Maybe using hovercrafts for your action sequences is k- k- kind of a dumb idea. No, it's not. Because See, it seeing looks how cool. how basically hovercrafts are really slow to turn, and at the same time they are pr- also pretty big in size, making them a massive targets to hit. Yeah. And then you are but- using them to k- kind of emulate a car chase. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. Actually, actually, they did use real hovercrafts. Some uh, modifications probably were made there. They tried something that would be rolling on some kind of a small tires, but they gave that up because they wanted to give it the kind of a unique movement of these hovercrafts. And I enjoy Tom Franklin, Mr. Franklin. Do you? Yes, I do. It was a bit too long for me, however. Oh. So, am I the only one who is watching the hovercraft scene and me thinking, how on the great god of fuck can everybody actually miss hitting a goddamn hovercraft when it's right next to you? Yeah. I mean, it's not a sports car. The sports car went boom, boom, just a moment ago. This is a hovercraft. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Kari. I don't think that North Korea in real life would possess such technology. They might, but after... This is not the information that we give from the decadent Western media. But then again, once again, this is in this is in North Korea possessing this kind of level of technology. The, the cars and the hovercrafts most likely are Moon's own personal collection because Moon immediately mm-hmm. high orders them to be hidden when his father is coming around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is what. His father is complaining about his son. Why did he sell sell his country and his name? The music, though. The music. David Arnold is giving 130% in some moments in this film. For example, this hovercraft chase. And the hovercraft chase music piece is the single best piece that David Arnold ever scored for a James Bond film. That That is genius. Genius. How all these electronic pieces go together with the traditional orchestra. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Gives a uh, proper energy for the scene, and and this time also the cutting and the energy in the scenes themselves is working great. So it's it's great to watch. But Bond gets captured after the hovercraft chase, and this is a kind of a weird moment. Uh, did anyone pick up what is going on with Bond's obsession about who betrayed him? Because what betrayed James Bond in North Korea was the device that Zhao was using to reveal the identity of James Bond. So why is he going on chasing Miranda Frost, which will be later revealed to be Miranda Frost? Well, did anybody find this part kind of confusing? Very. Yeah. But it's starting to open up. What, what, what uh, the mole in, in MI6 plotline? Because I thought 
it was just a facial recognition device, you know. No, no, it, it, it's a cell phone. It, it's a, it's a what? Sony Ericsson cell phone. And somebody sent sends an image of of Bond's dossier. Oh, you read it like that because how I've read it for like almost twenty years now is that he has a special device which has like a like a access to CIA system database yeah, or something. Yeah. That's how I've always read it. So I don't understand yeah. this Miranda Frost stuff at all. So somebody handed the North Koreans a dossier of Bond. Pretty well, much, yeah. Yeah, okay. That actually makes sense. It's good that we have fresh viewpoints here because I never honestly got that one. Nope, I didn't. Yeah. And I felt quite dumb as well. <laughs> but you can join me in that. I will, I will join you. And it's definitely the problem of some James Bond films where the plots are trying to get too smart for their own good, as Jen, uh, as Brosnan put it once. But anyway, nothing too smart here. So carry on. So James Bond gets captured. The uh, Moon's father is like giving this, my son is dead. And Brosnan is just smirking there. Yeah, looks like he is. <laughs> and then, he, then he's taken to the prison. Most of the uh, torture material that they shot was used during the title sequence, which is great. And also works great because they are using this torture material, so it's carrying the plot on as we are watching the film. Yeah, this is this is the opening credits of of Die Another Day. They are, I, I would say, they are the most revolutionary ones in in the franchise because this is the only time when when the opening credits are actually used as a narrative di- direct narrative device and not just a mood setter. And the scorpions look. Too much of a CGI. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. The vi- visuals look atrocious and are pretty much non-impressive. Like when it comes to the visuals of the, of, of the opening credits, they are pretty lackluster, extremely lame. When it comes to the torture material, that's also lame. The most you get is some goddamn waterboarding and seeing how much there was hype when the film was coming out of. About the fact that Bondi gets captured and he gets tortured. I most definitely myself, I was expecting something way more than what we get. This is what I was talking about. That it's, this is a watered-down upgrade of 007. Lita Mahori is given some ammo here. He, he can do these torture sequences and give a long beard for James Bond. And do a little bit of a rougher sex scene, which is once again a watered-down version of what they could have done. But they don't want to do that because they want to keep it PG-13, for example. And not ever dare to push the franchise wide enough. Like Lita Mahori said somewhere uh, on the alleys of Pinewood. Like, it's a Bond franchise. There's like a limited scope still what I can do here. Yeah, but is that then a good thing? Because you can't keep the, the... it's, after all, how the franchise has been surviving for over all these years. They need to update it, like properly update it sometimes. So the credits are going and uh, Die Another Day by Madonna is playing in the background. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I skipped this. <laughs> I skipped, skipped forward this. two minutes because I've heard the song so many times. <laughs> like, like the visuals, it, it, there is a possibility that it also is, is kind of the more revolutionary score. Of, of the franchise. I didn't like it when it came out. It's uh, kind of a grower in some sense. Mm-hmm. But fact of the matter is that it is, it's, it's quite empty. 
it doesn't have this like traditional orchestra side to it really it's there's not a lot of instruments always and it has a lot of pauses like noted also by Tamahori and it's just, it's just not ver- not very good I mean, it's okay it's, it's it's just maybe not bond material as a as a as a song it's complete dog shit like it's it's borderline unlistenable but once again there, there is a small chance like th- this is some something that you can't be completely sure it's either or kind of a situation where there is a possibility that to like the visuals the song also is a direct narrative device like the uh, that the song also would carry some or some part of the narrative and it would be telling the film's narrative through its lyrics but that is, that is unlike with the visuals when when it comes to the madonna song you can't be 100% cer- certain of this and uh, and uh, and kind of uh, paradoxically the Precisely the reason why you can't be certain of it is is because of the artist because because the song is being performed by Madonna. Wait, what? You can't carry on the plot of the film via the song because it's done by Madonna. Yep, yep. Like the, 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 there is a possibility that it's it is carrying the story that the lyrics are telling the story, but you can't be one hundred percent certain of it because the singer is Madonna. Mm. <laughs> Tom, did you get that? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, somebody did. So let's move on. Uh, so Bond is as a prisoner in North Korea. Uh, can I just say, I'm getting the feeling that <clears throat> Henrik doesn't like this movie too much. Come on, I'm I, I'm defending the opening credits and I'm defending the theme song. Okay, fair a- at least partly, but. <sighs> The the thing is, when you look at the lyrics, when you look at the lyrics of, of, of the song, you can actually see moments where you can, could say that, yeah, this is part of telling the narrative of, of, of the film. When the song is saying, I'm gonna keep this secret, I'm gonna close my body now, which could be symbolizing Bond deciding not to give in during the torture, not, not to disclose any MI6 secrets, and with I'm gonna close my body now, which could be read as as Bond kind of ascending his consciousness out of his body, like he does in a later scene of the film, when when he's in, in the infirmary. And and with those moments, you can, you can kind of see that, yeah, yeah, the lyrics could be telling part of the narrative. They could be giving you kind of what is the Bond's mental state when when he's being tortured. But the problem you have with with the title song is the fact that this is like this is the 2003 Madonna. And Madonna as an artist has well she always has been pretty controversial artist, but she also has been an artist who who has been notorious for the fact that she quite often makes the song songs about herself like she is one one of the pop divas that mostly sing about herself and that that kind of a whole ties into the whole whole is is the title theme is it about bond or is it about madonna because this is like because this is once again this is the american life time period madonna and american time life as an album was was also infamous for the fact that it became out 
when the Iraq war was going on. It was it was one of the first major or it was the first major pop album that came out after the war has started. And the album and the songs that it had, they they used the war as as kind of a background. The album cover itself, the album art is is very revolutionary. With, with, for example, how the cover is with Madonna presenting herself as a, as a Czechoevaresque revolutionary figure. And, for example, the fact that the American Life, the original music video for, for, the, for the title song, American Life, uh, also was, was, was a video that used very strong war imagery. It was basically the whole conceit of, of the music video was was a catwalk show, a fashion show, which, as it goes on, it turns into a more horrific depictions of of war and what war does to soldiers. It became it's it's a catwalk where they, in the end, they drag the bloodied corpses of the U.S. troops on the catwalk. Like that was the original music video, which then got set, pulled off and censored and remade in much less political fashion. But w- w- once again, the, the, there is a disconnect between the song, the, the music video and the lyrics of American Life. Like when it comes to the lyrics, Madonna is once again, she's singing about herself. The, the only anti-war stuff on that song being just a repeated war, fuck it. And that that kind of that kind of is 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 the whole American life as an album. It's a, it's an it's an album that uses revolutionary imagery. It's an w- album that uses war imagery, but where every single song, one way or the another, is Madonna singing about herself. And because of this, it's hard to say when it comes to the title song of Die Another Day. What is the actual target? What is the point of Madonna's song? Because like with American Life, the album, you, you can see, you, you get imagery which ties the song to Bond. You get Bond imagery with, with the title song. And you get Bond imagery possibly in the lyrics of the title song. But once again, this is Madonna. This is American Life Madonna. An artist who very strong, who is very willing to use imagery, but then make the songs about herself. So, so that that kind of kind of a kind of a makes the the whole whole question very gray. It kind kind of a limelights the the whole conceit. Like, which is the target? What is Madonna actually singing about? Is is she singing about Bond? Is is she singing about Bond's mental mental state? When Bond is being tortured, or is Madonna once again just singing about herself? And you can't tell it, like, you, you can't really say for certain. Yeah, that's quite a deep read. haven't really delved that too deep into the whole idea of what's, what she's singing about. I think I always saw it as uh, singing about Bond, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but partly, at times you, you really can see it. And and then some other line of the lyrics hits you right in the face, and you are once again you are kind of asking yourself at that how how does this tie to Bond? And you can actually see it more strongly once again being Madonna singing about herself. 
and it's it's like it's it's a real brain twister and clusterfuck of a situation. Because I I myself I have also tried to piece it together. I've tried to try to make my mind which is the case. Like what what is the target of the song? And I still haven't been able to decide completely. There is this uh, dramatic scene where they change the prisoners. Zhao is being exchanged to James Bond. So the North Koreans get Zhao back, their assassin, their agent, whatever his title is. And this exchange is done only so that they can get James Bond out because MI6 has deduced that it appears that James Bond has given some vital information, cracked under torture, so they need to get him back before situation will escalate. What was the thing that he was supposedly babbling about in the interrogation? Do you remember this? Um, it's never really made clear what he was actually accused of giving out, except quote-unquote classified information. Zhao had been trying to make a bomb hit on, on, on that summit between North and South Korea, and that was where he had been captured. So M goes to say that Zhao tried to blow up a summit between South Korea and China, took out three Chinese agents before he was caught, and now he's free. And Bond says, I never asked to be traded. I'd rather die in prison than let him lose. M says, the top American agent in the North Korean high command was executed a week ago. The Americans intercepted a signal from your prison, naming him. <coughs> okay, whatever that signal then, then was. But yeah, that's what they think. Yeah, but basically it's just once again spy talk. It's it's dropping some words which which sound very spy-like, but which on their own doesn't really mean anything. Like like here they are dropping off the word signal, which once again is is very spy-like as as a word. Spy films often use signals here and there, but they don't make it clear what type of signal that was, what signal they intercepted. And it's the lack of these details that makes it fuzzy. M is here just to drive the plot along, and I feel there's a lot of unnecessary word salad. There, there quite much is. Like there, there is. There's an unnecessarily lot from M. All, all this you you had your orders and you you know the rules and i knew the rules and all, all that whole dialogue exchange which in the end just amounts to m firing bond from the secret service once again added to the fact that there is this line that bond says that moon could a call uh, that let me get that correct the mission was compromised moon could a call exposing me it's a bit confusing because in the film we only get this digital screen from the whatever Ericsson phone where they get the, the bio of James Bond. Not really a call. Or whatever you then want to say is a call. I understand call as a phone call. And Bond adds the same person who set me up then has just set me up again to get Zhao out. So I'm going after him. And that's pretty much what he does because he manages to e- e- escape from no custody in like matter of 10 minutes. So Bond uses this uh, super skills that he has learned in the North Korean prison to fake a cardiac arrest somehow. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's 
but like, it, it, it's much like, much the situation that Bond's heart gives gives up alongside with the audiences when Bond remembers the opening credits of the film. It's quite hilarious to listen to Lita Mohori to talk about how this scene came about. So he's just basically talking that in the North Korean prison camps, yeah, James Bond, you know, apparently learned some kind of uh, skills that he can you know, basically control his his body so fully that he can pull off these these tricks for whatever purpose he wanted to use them in the North Korean prison cells. And now he's pulling it off here. <laughs> anyway, this is kind of a special for a James Bond film that we have these flashbacks, flashbacks of any kind, in fact. It's black and white flashbacks to the torture sequences, which may not be, may not be extremely imaginative, but it's there. And after which we completely forget about the gritty side of this film, I feel after this, it immediately comes into this Roger Moore, lightweight, uh, slapstick type of stuff immediately. And it never lets go. Yeah, w- w- whatever grit the film had, has is dropped when, right on the moment when Bond escapes. It, it, the film itself, it becomes almost a parody at, at worst times. After that moment, when it comes to dark themes, when it comes to to violence, the opening credits and and the torture material is is the hardest that you are gonna get with Die Another Day. But this is so absurd, Henrik. Like for of the runtime, what is it now? About twenty seven minutes. The film appears to be gritty at points. It has some good things going for it. Some people say that this was their favorite James Bond film until it loses the greediness or at the very least until the film goes to Iceland, which is noted in several occasions that the film is kind of split in two. There's the part before Iceland and after Iceland. I I, I would say that the Cuba is also downright retarded. Yeah, uh, I would say that yeah they completely ab- abandoned these good things and uh, it's... Back to the basic goofing. So Bond walks into this club with the wet clothes. So no glamour for James Bond here. That's that's something new, at least. And then the peaceful fountain of desire comes to Bond's hotel room. And she's not that kind of a masseuse. And he's not that kind of a customer. And behind the fake mirror, you have Zhang, the Chinese intelligence Zhang, and his cameraman, which are actually Brosnan's stunt buddies. They're good friends. Here trying to one, once again call back to that whole sex tape plot line from Russia. Yeah, probably, probably. There's yeah, of course there's some kind of a list of all these callbacks. In my books I'm not really too interested in them, but that's a good way of looking at it. They use the fake mirror there as well. Tunihalun lähde. <laughs> Chang realizes that they are indeed playing for the same side, and that they have the same goal to get rid of Zhao. And Bond is going after him. Cheng has a phone call. Homepa, homepa, kakakakulpol. And after this, Bond is equipped with some tools. So Cheng realizes that uh, Bond and Cheng are fighting the same fight, and Cheng even goes to the lengths to give him the new passport and some papers and money to go on his little trip to Cuba. So basically, the Chinese Secret Service is supporting the mission of an MI6 agent to go on his rogue mission. <laughs> yeah, at this point rogue MI6 agent, even though Chan might not be up on the intake. 
And here, here they use for Havana, Cuba, the location of Cadiz or Cadiz in Spain, which is where you have a traditional mask festival in every year. Is it in February? It's really famous and really famous location. You can see it looks pretty. They were shooting in Spain in November, so no wonder it was cold in the beach, for example, during the introduction of Halleberry, and they had to wait for the correct weather. Of course, it's going to be cold and bad weather. It's November. And constantly between takes, they had to give a towel or something warm for, for Halleberry because she was wearing a bikini. Mm. Mm. I'm going to sound like quite a dickhead, but she's not the most attractive Bond girl. Oh. She's, yeah, she, she is not. I remember back in those golden days in 2002, everybody was about Halleberry. I was I was a trainee in one job, and I remember this guy who had put all his Windows screensavers as Halleberry. Well, Halleberry was hot shit. She she was hot shit because she was she was coming out as a as an actress, and she was like this is the, the era where Halleberry's career really, really finally started to take off. There was the X Men movies, that the first one be coming out in two thousands, which first time landed her in a big franchise. Then there was. Monsters Ball, which netted her an Oscar, Oscar if I remember correctly, and then there is then there is Die Another Day, another franchise picture. Yeah, she was kicking her heels in the air when she heard about that she had won it. It was during Die Another Day shooting. Yup, and that pretty much was it. It for the for the most part for for Halle Perry. Ever since, because after after Die Another Day, well, well, she did have X-Men 2, but after that one, the career once again took a downturn. There was the, the, the next she made was the really abysmal ghost horror film Gothica, and that was followed by one of the most infamous films from her, the 2004's Catwoman. Gothica was pretty bad, right? Yeah, it 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 was. It was. Yeah. It, it it had it had like one clever premise, which is the one that the shrink all of a sudden finds out that she herself has been locked in in the in the mental asylum and is being accused of murder. But outside of that one plot premise, there really was nothing in that film. I only remember the end titles. No one knows what it's like to be yep, a bad yep. man. Yeah. From Limpitskits, Fred Durst's oh, oh, cover of Behind Blue Eyes. Yeah. Which is actually the best version, anyway. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, which version is the best? Limp. Yes, quite. Original. No, 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 no. Way, way, way better than the overproduced. Limp Biscuit, like like Limp Biscuit, Limp Biscuit's cover was listenable when it came out, and you were in your teens and you didn't know better. Better, and the in post edit added kind of a distorted synth vibes somehow sounded edgy. It's only because you have grown. You have first heard the original, probably. I heard first the limp version, then I tried to get into the original, but I just can't. I, I actually also did he- hear the limps for version first. Okay. On Kerrang Radio? 
No, never, never used Kerrang. I I caught it on MTV. Ah. Was playing non-stop back in the day, so like basically every piece of music that got picked up by MTV. That the whole format was that they keep repeating the song until you get, become conditioned to it. Yeah. And that that might be something that explains you and Conry's feelings towards Limp's cover. You you became conditioned. <coughs> And you never actually were able to break that conditioning. Yeah, you were. Most people were conditioned to the original, which is a shit version, and the Limp Bizkit is much better. All right, carrying on. The the original was what seventies. How how the fuck were you conditioned to that? I wasn't. The rest of the population that were born in the sixties probably were. All right, so. <laughs> Wonderful stuff once again today. We get to the cigar factory and Bond just walks through it. He has just informed this guy with the cigar that, that he wants to meet the big guy. Is it Delectados. Yeah, Delectados dude. And we have this guy in the cigar factory or whatever is supposed to be like a front for a fake cigar factory. We have this guy who is reading the news from the newspaper. Anglo, Sinadis, Mumos and Papas and Legos. This guy. My f- wonderful Spanish skills in this podcast. Um... He's reading those those news articles from the newspaper because apparently this is something that happens sometimes in the factories because the workers in the factory cannot afford to buy a newspaper so somebody has to read the news for them. Mm, nice. Yeah, and the Tamahori, Mr. Tamahori wanted to include it in that scene. Okay, carrying on to Mr. Pablo's Delectados. This actor has to be pointed out. Emilio Echevarria playing Raul. Hands down, up. Sideways, the best actor of the film, Emilio Echevarria, playing Raul. Right here, very funny guy. Yeah, he didn't have a big enough role for me to judge, really. Yeah, he he kind of doesn't do anything in in the he, film. He does a lot. He does a lot. He's a pleasure he, to he, watch. He's, the, he he smokes cigar and he gives like five lines, which he delivers expertly. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but he doesn't really feature enough to he does he does because he's so good he's so lively in his expressions he's, he's uh, so he didn't really make a big impact on my consciousness he did a fantastic he, he blew my mind during this film anyway i i love this uh goddess rooftop scene where james bond and raul are discussing it. i never quite understood <laughs> what is going on with this raul character because bond goes on to say that zhao is not interested in the freedom of people and then he just cracks up laughing and explains something to his fellow in Spanish so fast that my friend who speaks Spanish couldn't understand a word that he was saying. Except the hombre in the end. It's like, hombre. <laughs> and then the other guy puts the gun away. Once again, Raul is this kind of <laughs> mystical character, just like the uh, Chinese Chang, who is giving, for some reason, Bond a lot of help in the sense of this pistol, this revolver, he gives him a car, albeit not very Bondian, but gives him a car, and that's the funny thing, because it's not very Bondian. Everybody wants to help this random rogue agent. They're friends from the past. Uh, Chang, yeah, they they knew each other, Chang and Bond. Well, the film doesn't manage to make it clear what they are, and what they are supposed to be. Bond picks up in Raoul's office the book The Birds of the West Indies, written by James Bond, and which is the inspiration for the character name of James Bond, which Ian Fleming thought was... Uh, very kind of a boring name, which would be great for a secret agent. Raoul's best delivery is here. Favors called in. Some Dallas spread about. 
I can't imitate this guy. This is, he puts passion into every line. And maybe you're overrating this guy. Some dollars. I'm not some dollars. I'm trying to think of something profound to say about this character, but he just didn't feature long enough. It's okay. He, he is profound by himself. Cool. Introduction of Halle Berry is also done in Gadith, Gadith, whichever pronunciation you prefer, on a famous beach there. And now James Bond is looping through the binoculars, the castle that is on the other side, that is the that is the gene therapy clinic on the island, which is an actual island also in Gadith. So... James Bond looks again with binoculars and checks out what kind of a tortoise is coming from that direction. Oh, it's Halleberry. And this is imitating, of course, the rise from the water of Ursula Andress in Dr. No. Yes. And for no reason at all, she has the knife on the belt. Just to emulate that scene. Again, very underwhelming scene. You know, she's a, yeah, she's not my type. She's Chechen Chachonshan. This is a scene where every single line is basically a one-liner. But hey... It's well shot. Yep. The film is well well shot. In this scene, I'm really impressed by James Bond's pickup skills. It takes really no time at all from the first meeting to having sex. Yeah, even even when you're blowing your cigar fumes yeah. to the girl's face. E- e- even when you are considerably older than the lady you are picking up. No, oh, come on. He's, he's, he's... He's a little bit older. Al- could almost be a granddad at that point. Uh, if memory yeah, serves, he, it's, he was... it's pretty, pretty insidious. It's pretty, pretty, no, it's pretty yucky, but you no, know, you, no, you get no. that with your James Bond experiences. No, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pierce Brosnan was a little bit over 50, roughly, and uh, Halle Berry was 33. They look good. And I yeah, look... and she looks something like, uh, I don't know, 30, 28. Whatever they look like, they could be a pair in real life. In fact, no, no, the... they they most definitely don't look like it. That that would look like a, a sugar daddy and and his prostitute pretty no. much. No, not true. The publicity pictures were great. They had a great chemistry off camera and on camera. I feel. I I I I I'm trying to say that that Photoshop made the pair look good. Yeah, and I'm also saying that. That this is finally a girl that Pierce Brosnan was really interested to working with. Well, of course, she's uh, beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I have no doubt about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but Henrik, are you always this frisky? Because we now get to this bed scene. This is the overhyped uh, lovemaking scene, which is kind of a steering on the sex scene direction. But not quite. But believe it not or not, this was also cut in the US. It's a different cut in the US version and in the UK version. UK version is the, the more better version. But essentially nothing really happens here. Okay, it's a little bit rougher. You know. Yeah, well, no no surprise there. I, I would even say it's better that nothing happens there. So, Bonnie's taking the wheelchair, and knocking on this guy's door. These are supposed to be these, these gangsters with the guns near the cleaning. These are supposed to be the people who are are also going to go through the gene therapy procedure. Well, now one of them gets knocked out. He gets with that guy inside the clinic and uh, very respectfully pushes the wheelchair to the wall. So it keeps the guards occupied and he enters further inside the facility. There is the star in Castro's hat on the wall and that's how Bond gets access to this secret passageway where apparently Halleberry's character 
already is talking with this gene therapy doctor. Uh, so apparently bone marrow level will be also modified on, on this procedure. Because that's how it works. Aren't they supposed to wipe the bone marrow clean? Like strip your body out of bone marrow? Yeah, so basically not being anything. Well, pretty much actually putting your patients in in the lethal risk because without bone marrow, the odds of you dying kind of grow exponentially. Also, the shooting of the doctor was cut differently in versions. I think I have the roughest version. It seems to enter the head, this bullet here. So we are at the clinic. This is in real life at San Sebastian in Cadiz. Defense fortress dating from 1706. The floor was made of linoleum, so everybody kept slipping. Pierce Brosnan had just returned to shooting after injuring his ankle in North Korea. And uh, now he's trying very hard to not slip again. Zhao is there having his makeup going. Who looks really, really weird. Yup. Whoa. Kind of white. In the process, in the making of becoming a German guy. Well, he's he's basically he's becoming whitewashed, so. <laughs> and those blue contact lenses and the diamonds in the face. Di- di- diamonds being the biggest offense here. Well, it's because really Bondian, isn't it? After all, that's what they're trying to do. That's what Tamahori. Once again, by the way, Tamahori's idea. Tamahori's idea to have this comic book-like look for Zhao with the diamonds. It's at this point where the film gets a little bit off the rails for me. Yeah. Starts. Get- it's, it starts straying into the realm of science fiction. Yeah, I don't y- like you, this. You mean science facts, which is the oh. realm that the oh, franchise yeah. is very known for. Science facts? Yeah. Yeah, whichever realm at this point. So Zhao jumps out of the window, out of the Pinewood Studios, back into Curtis, runs to the helicopter. Halleberry, or Jinx, as she's known here, tries to shoot the helicopter. In real life, she also got some... A grenade a shrapnel to her eyes. It could have been a way, way worse situation, but uh, they were able to remove this shrapnel piece from her eye or eyes quite quickly, in like 30 minutes. And of course, media wanted to make a big fuss about the whole situation, like that Halleberry was under some kind of a very lethal, dangerous situation, which it wasn't in the end. And Pierce Brosnan and his shrinking pants... Every time the pants got wet, he needed to keep changing them because they would shrink so much. Halleberry doesn't need to shrink clothing because she's removing clothing and jumping into a CGI green screen background. They needed to do some additional close-ups when Brosnan is taking the diamonds out of this shelling. Uh, so this with the blue background, that's the done in studio. Now we get to back to the some dollars guy. So they're checking the conflict diamonds. That Bond has now picked up at the clinic. It has the letters GG, Gustav Graves. And Bond thinks that it's an amazing coincidence. Sarcastically. I don't know what is so what what is the amazing coincidence, even sarcastically here. But Well what what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean I, I mean I, it, it I, has I, to be coincidence. You're following Zhao and you think it's an amazing coincidence, sarcastically. Well, 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 of course it is. Like, it doesn't work. Well, what, what, what do you mean, doesn't work? Well, because it's obvious. Uh, I- I- exa- exactly what part is obvious? 
So yeah, Zhao was in touch with the diamonds and now he finds Zhao and Zhao has diamonds. Yeah, what an amazing coincidence. What is so special about that? Well, 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 Zhao actually had, had gotten diamonds. North Korea in the start of the film. But the film, uh, diamonds don't come from North Korea. They are some kind of a conflict diamonds. They, are, they ain't North Korean rocks. Mm, right. That, that, that's that's the whole whole conceit behind the the fucking I- Iceland facility. It's supposed to be the place where Gustav Graves launders his conflict diamonds. Yeah, it's messed up from the beginning. So, what the hell are these diamonds then in the beginning? If not the Gustav Graves diamonds that he's trying to smuggle and launder, there's diamonds everywhere. Try to figure out which diamonds. They, 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 they are once again that they are supposed to be. I guess they are, once again, some type of conflict diamonds. The problem here is that, that the, the character of Van Birk, who, who is the diamond smuggler or the diamond dealer in the beginning of the film, his character is never actually opened up. You never know who that ma- character is and what are the diamonds he is bringing. But judging from the fact that how much Edo is done about the conflict diamonds, that the conflict and the area where the diamonds are coming from never made clear to the audiences, but but you you are being allowed to know that much that they are they are conflict diamonds. They come from conflict or some shit like that. But like like the most logical spider web that you can you can weep from all, all of this is that that one Björk is is someone who owns a diamond mine in a conflict territory, most likely in South Africa or some other hotspot, which was featured in heavily in headlines around the time when the film was coming out. And he is some kind of a colleague still with Gustav Graves, giving Graves his diamonds in exchange for something, which is never actually addressed. So like 90% of that was cut off by courtesy of Discord. But what you're saying is that the diamonds in the beginning have nothing to do with the Gustav Grave conflict diamonds later. They, 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 they could have something to do. Uh. But once again, the whole diamond uh, case gets blown up. I mean, I mean, when it comes to the, the diamonds from the beginning of the film, Zhao is carrying most of them in his goddamn face. <laughs> yeah, so once again, James Bond movie is making this a little bit too complex for its own good. I mean, why do you have to show diamonds in the beginning of the film if they essentially have nothing to do with the overall plot? Well, well it, 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 it ties around with the theme of the film, which is ice. Jesus. Uh, diamonds and ice kind of, you know, mixing together. Diamonds sometimes being called ice in the slang language. But but yeah, that, that, that is the magical connection between, between like, like or, or the thematical connection between, between the ice, which is the main theme of the film, and the diamonds, which you are shown in the beginning of the movie. Kind of when it comes to the diamonds, the more prominent question is that that since since Gustav Graves is is alias of 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 General Moon, and that Gustav Graves is a character Moon has has taken upon himself after he has gone through the the Cuban therapy and has changed himself into a white guy. That that means that. Basically, Gustav Graves as a character has 
been around or has existed only for something like 14 months, which is the time period that Bond was held held imprisonment in prison in North Korea. And Gustav Graves can't have a solid airtight background. That that's kind of a like impossibility since Gustav Graves is a made-up identity. So then you kind of have to ask that that in the world that, that does have real life diamond diamond experts, how none of those experts has picked up on the fact that Gustav Graves diamonds bear close resemblance to the conflict diamonds to a point where just some random Cuban can just you know look at the diamond and Im- immediately deduct that yeah this is a conflict diamond and more more notably since Gustav Graves when he's been introduced in the film is preparing to be ignited by the queen then how the fuck has has Gustav Graves's Conflict diamonds and the fact that Gustav Graves does not have any kind of a real background yes. except from mo- 14 months when he officially started to exist. How does that go past the Queen's secret agency and ba- basically the MI6 and the e- entire world's intelligence communities? Does absolutely fucking no one run background checks in this film's universe? Exactly, and it didn't take long at all from his transition to Gustav Graves to him meeting the Queen, which is also very just you know, ridiculous. Meeting the Queen. Oh, the well, knighthood, whatever. When does this happen? Yeah, uh, and he didn't meet the Queen, but no wait, no, um, he did meet the Queen. Where? He doesn't show it in the film, but Miranda Frost does say that we can't keep oh. Her Majesty waiting any any longer. Oh yeah. Queen has have some had some kind of an insomnia, and uh, that's that's how it works. But the more ridiculous aspect is that are they really keeping James Bond locked up in North Korea just for the reason that he can go over his transition into Gustav Graves? That's that's stupid. Also, the actual diamonds plot is not going anywhere. It's just there as a kind of a half baked MacGuffin to carry on James Bond to Iceland to find this Icarus gun, and after all. The audience notices that, hey, this plot is not really about any kind of diamonds at all. It's just something that is attached to this device in space. It's a satellite. That's it. Yeah, I mean, in in this film, the satellite doesn't even use diamonds as as an, any kind of energy source. Well, it concentrates the sun's power, so apparently diamonds are very much needed for that. The, the satellite does. Does not mention in any way that, that the satellite itself would be using diamonds. Well, the satellites do have the diamonds. And it's the exact same plot in Diamonds Are Forever. And if, if you look at the CGI, that's what it suggests. Diamonds. Oh, oh then, then just, you know, a big-ass satellite. With diamonds. Well, 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 once again, I didn't see the diamonds in the goddamn satellite. Well, it would be pretty astonishing if it doesn't have the diamonds because that's the diamonds are forever plot. And what the hell do you do with the diamonds in any way if if if, if you don't have any plot device for it? Well, what's the so the diamonds well, would you, be such leading do, do, to do, the? Do you do you wanna do you really wanna hear why why is the main conceit of the diamonds in this film? <sighs> The, like, like I, I can tell you, I, I can tell you, t- tell it to you, Karri. It's, 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 it, it is in the forty-eight minutes and 
18 seconds mark when yeah, Bond is on the airplane and he's reading the magazine article of of uh, about Gustav Graves and and there is a quote from Gustav which says diamonds are forever but life isn't something 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 it ca- kind of a ca- gets cut off by, by the the lower end of the frame, but you really do get the diamonds are forever. And that is the main reason why diamonds are in this film, so, just so that Gustav Graves can give that that quote, which ties it to a previous Bond film. Okay, and here goes Google search. Diner Day, diamonds <laughs> in satellite. Well, anyway... It's the like the only option that I have ever even considered. It's I never even thought about any other option than the diamonds being in space once again. And to make this even neater, diamonds are forever reference. To also have it in the plane and also have it in the space. Whichever the case, if they are not even in the satellite, then it's absolutely boring plot device. Because the place where they go to Iceland, it's not even a real, real mine, as they say. So nothing's going on. It's just a plot device to get Bond to Gustav Graves in Iceland. The pretty much, yeah. Like that, that's, that's why diamonds are there. Yeah. That and the thematical connection. And also to work as, as some kind of a shorthanded explanation on where Gustav Graves has, has gotten his fortune, which, he's, which he has used to build Icarus. Because the, the, there is the off-handed remark that Gustav Graves is somehow money laundering conflict diamonds. Roger Moore's and daughter Deborah, who is actually in the plane, giving the drink to James Bond. Yeah, we have the entrance of Gustav Graves. Graves dramatically with the parachute while London Calling by The Clash is playing. The first time when James Bond film apparently does this, that it plays some kind of a well-known theme in the background. It's a great song and it's a great scene. Yeah, and it's well cut with David Arnold's soundtrack how it transitions into David Arnold. I like it. But then what I don't like is the Epe fencing fight. Oh, that's brilliant. It escalated so quickly, like two big egos. <sighs> Why does it escalate, though? It's just two big egos. I can see that Gustav Graves can have some point for him to challenge James Bond so heavily, whereas James Bond really does, doesn't have any point to get so uh, defensive in the or offensive in this situation. It's just then the ego. Well, it's quite a serious scene from from the point of view of the directors, but for me, it was just so comical how it just progressed so very quickly from just meeting and ten minutes later they're fighting and they're destroying the fencing hall. It's just right. <laughs> it's just funny. But but they they have to do that. They have to destroy the fencing hall because fencing it's itself it's not extreme enough. Yeah. True. Yeah, true. And they were training for a long time for this fencing process for a shorter time because he was injured and then just came there and said, that, all right, I'm going to challenge Gustav Graves, who has been training for this way longer than I am. And it uh, turned out really well. Uh, seemed to pull it off really greatly. There is this one sword kicked before the fight by Pierce Brosnan, almost to the eye socket of the cameraman, completely unplanned. Then we get to the end of the fight where Miranda Frost says that that is enough. They shake hands. Some stuff in the lobby, and uh, Miranda Frost is giving some frostbites at James Bond's direction, not getting warmed up at all for... Miranda has a great voice. She has a wonderful voice. Yeah, very British. No, just very smooth and very 
delicate. Mm. Her first proper film, actually. Yeah, Rosamunda Pipe, ha- having done only TV roles before before Diana the Day. Yeah, well done. We get to cue slap because Bond gets the key in the lobby of this fencing place. And we meet the new Q, who used to be R in The World Is Not Enough, played by John Cleese now, because, unfortunately, Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q for the entire franchise before this situation, died in a car accident. Uh, no, wait. Doesn't he meet M down there? Also meets M. And in between, there is this video game. Any thoughts about that? Completely unnecessary. I don't like when they're playing with their main characters and shooting them off and then just playing this... Oh, it was just a dream card. And in this case, oh, it was just a game card. And of course, this has to be planted here because it's going to be played out in the end with Moneypenny. More likely, it has to be planted here because the goddamn movie can't go on for five minutes without an action sequence. That is true. Well, hey, at least it's moving. The world is not enough was boring our brains out just a few years earlier. So it's something. Well, it's shit. I tell you what is shit. Tomorrow Never Dies and the World is Not Enough. And what I noticed when revisiting Die Another Day, the unfortunate reality is that after GoldenEye, Die Another Day is uh, the second best. No, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not. Get, get it's, the fuck out. Get, I'm, not getting, like, like, I'm, not, I'm not getting anywhere. This is the like, reality of the situation. They, they, Go visit Tomorrow Never Dies and the World is Not Enough. These are extremely boring, unimaginative, even in Tomorrow Never Dies in many places, more stupid laughably bad dialogue as well and they don't even do anything inventive at least this movie tries to do something different and the cinematography is okay whereas the world is not enough it's, it's it doesn't get right it's action action scenes it's cinematography uh, the dialogue may be all right but even the even the plot is a snooper the locations are dead boring this movie tries yeah tries where I, I, exactly like, like, show, show me the moment where the film is trying. Okay. Uh, some of the action scenes are quite solid. Well cut. It keeps the flow going. And it, uh, it has this 28 minutes in the beginning of this edgy stuff until James Bond escapes the premises, as noted. So it has those things going on. It's, it's already way more than Tomorrow Never Dies and the World is Not Enough nah, it, are offering. It, 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 it's on the same level then. Then the world, world is not enough. Or I'm afraid not. Die. I'm afraid not. Go revisit those films. Your torture goes fucking nowhere. Your torture is a Madonna song, essentially. The, 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 and the action has flow. Like, like your, your defense for the film is that in the action sequences, that there are images that happened, happened like back to back. There's, there's images that transition into other images. Pretty much, pretty much, because there's nothing really to say about Tomorrow Never Dies and the world is not enough. And there's this nothing movie, really to say different. about this, uh, uh, except use this as a case example of precisely how t- how not to make a Bond film. Please go watch Tomorrow Never Dies and the world is not enough, and please tell me what is so uh, groundbreaking or imaginative about those films. Well, there's nothing, some... nothing, 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 nothing right. is, and nothing is here either. If you don't more count here, in, in more for, for, for a moment where Bond is playing a VR game. Yeah, exactly. Jesus fucking Christ. That is terrible. That is terrible. This is still a much more enjoyable film overall than Tomorrow Never Rise the World is not enough easily. 
No, no. Unfortunately, no. yeah. No, this is the reality. Unfortunately, not. Not by much, Henrik. Not by much. Like, These like. are all shit films. <laughs> But this comes second after gold, and I no the, questions the, asked. No, 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 yep, no, no. Yep, 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 yep. No, yep. no, no. This, this, this comes sec- like like second, r- right next to your grandmother being mauled by by a vicious baboons or rapid badgers. I realized that this is not actually as bad as we made it out to be. It's it's not Brosnan's worst for me. I went through these films, GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Has to World, Dishonored, Dino the Day, and I just, I just gotta say, there's there's nothing going for the middle part you, of you, his you're career. Just, you're, you're just trying to be controversial here. I'm not trying well, at I, all, I, I, really. Did, uh, this this is the most entertaining you did Bond. your Google, you did your background searches, and you, you find out, found all the articles of top five worst Bond films where, where this was put to like, like the number one worst Bond film ever made and you, you decided to be, be, be the knight in the shining armor and did nope. defend James no. Bond no that that's what's happening here dear listeners that's not at all that's precisely so, it like I was saying like I was saying, I was ready to be fully supporting you guys in the sense that this would be the worst Brosnan Bond. Uh, but that's just not the reality after revisiting well, this film. Well, for me, this Bond film 100% has the best quips, the best one-liners. Of Brosnan's run? Of the entire franchise. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, well, yeah, yeah. There was not enough Big Bang in Roger Moore's one-liners. There not, are some not, good. There, there was not here. enough thrust in it. Plenty of ice, if you can spare it. Exactly. Time to face gravity. Exactly, Carrie. <laughs> I just those are my guilty pleasure lines. And there's one by Zhao as well, but I've forgotten it, which which, which was quite funny. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, in Finnish, Naura Mahakipurassa. Uh, how's that for a punchline? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> and this how how's that for a punchline? This is great because it's uh, one of those more rarely seen moments where James Bond is actually beaten in the one-liner department for this moment. I I, I really must admit, guys, I'm I'm disgusted by you, but both you, of you. Like. you. You go on and have fun with your world is not enough while I go away, far away from you. Yep, 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 yeah. You know, when the episode comes out, you are the one who makes the case that you are gonna have fun with with the uh, die another day. Uh, no, Henrik. I... Like, no. Yeah. No. No. Jeez. No. 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 Henrik, there is like, there is not there is not only on and off. There is also the middle ground. Uh, this is a truly terrible film. But the sad fact, as I said, is what it is. Why do you like on her? Secret Sense, but not this one. Why? Because it's a better film. No, it's not. <laughs> you choose Die Another Day over OHMSS. Wow. This is, this is, maybe I just just should go to sleep. <sighs> well, those are the opinions, man. Cutting edge opinions here at the Flick Lab. Mm. There are some absolutely atrocious lines as well. I'm Mr. Kill. There's a name to die for. No, that's fantastic line. <laughs> oh, God. It's so clumsy. 
But audience liked it. I remember everybody was laughing. So they arrived to Iceland now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm. Let's go about the Q scene. So Q scene. James Bond gets the invisible car. What to say about that? Well, theoretically, we could be close to having something like this. And if you think about it with the common sense, yeah. Okay. You have cameras inside the car, which are taking a picture of the outside and making an, making an average composite of that what they see and they surround the car to make kind of a camouflage i think you've been doing this podcast a bit too long yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean i mean good good as for uh, to the filmmakers for coming up at least somewhat believable explanation for the car but the, right. the fact is that that even with those cameras in even with those that Take the outcome would not be in any way as smooth as it's presented here. Maybe. Like the camouflage effect would look pretty horrific actually in, in real life if implemented. You see, here's one more great quip. I think you can shoot through this in a couple of hours, which was really good, I thought. Yeah, re- reflecting camera image with such clarity on the surface of the car that's that's it's a bit too science fiction to say the least at this moment so nobody's nobody's kind of buying it i never really cared about that whole thing that that much i have problems in other areas but that's the, the invisible car is like the smaller part of that it, it it's one of the dumbest gadgets that, the gadgets that bond has had yeah but then you say that in fifty you look at this episode in 50 years and then they have that kind of a technology uh-huh uh, they yeah. will never, yeah, I guarantee you they will never, ever, ever have that kind of technology. Yeah, right, we'll see about that. Uh, no, I'm absolutely correct in my assertion, because which country would allow invisible cars? It's just a death a death hazard. Well, it's a secret agent's car. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, who gives a fuck? <laughs> well, it's a military, military gadget. Nobody gives a F, as you suggest, in the times of espionage. Well, you you still have to play with some rules in real life when you are doing espionage. Like, if yeah. you would ever be caught driving invisible car in another country, or even in your own country, that would have been, like, the, polit- the political mess of a century. <laughs> like, heads yep. would roll after th- that stunt. Yeah. Maybe, baby, not defending the car, which I do not like. It's getting taking it a little bit too far. It's kind of this uh, boyish fantasy. Once again, it's kind of a kid's James Bond script, which the writers, Neil Burbison and Robert Wade, seem to be very fond of. And I, I think these writers are absolutely atrocious, and Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson should get these guys out of this project. So Mirror in the Frost meets M, and this is the first shot scene of Rosamund Pike. And now we get to Ice Palace, like the second half of the film that nobody seems to like. We have this kind of a Darth Vader moment when Zhao is walking to this face mask that is on Gustav Graves. So the old pals meet again. Now this is um, Anakin Skywalker when he turns to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. It so is. You know when he goes to the Jedi Temple to kill the younglings? Right, and that film it, was out that. in 2002. Yeah, so... Looks like the inspiration is right there. Kind of stupid. Why would you need a hood like that? And why do we have this this, this presentation of Gustav Graves and Gustav Graves about this 
this great satellite that will be somehow environmentally very friendly and provide environmentally friendly light for everybody because he's not going to use that device for that purpose in any way. Anyway, he wants to get a lot of guests there for a showdown that has no meaning whatsoever. And now that the light is being brought on to them, it's not actually overexposed film digitally. They actually had so many lights there that they got it overexposed, well, naturally, which caused a lot of troubles for them. It was very hot as in oven there. Does, does it also mean that, that like, like the characters they are playing, Cave, Spawn and Jinx, but, uh, but also, also the actors were obnoxiously stupid and so full of ego that they refused to wear any kind of a protective eyewear like sunglasses. Yeah, James Bond doesn't need it. Neither does Jinx, right? Yeah, yeah. Neither does Graves, because, you know, hey, eyesight is kind of overrated. Well, it's established that you need to show your hand to get inside this Eden, this uh, garden inside a glue. James Bond is doing some James Bond stuff and, and then is stopped by Miranda Frost for purposes of kissing. And reason is unknown... Because in this moment, Miranda Frost could have just fried James Bond in the act. Why just keep this going further? Nobody knows. Be- be- because because the movie needs a twist, man. All right. Miranda Frost has has read the script and knows that the twist is still coming. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. And meanwhile, Harry Belly, I mean Halle Berry, is getting inside the Eden Project while Miranda Frost and James Bond have this uh, lovemaking. On the swan. Ice swan. This is one of the most meaningless lovemaking scenes in James Bond history. It's, it happens really quickly. doesn't really have any point. It's just mutual understanding of having some fun. And then it really doesn't contribute anything. Well, well it, it contributes to the, the trope of James Bond basically managing to shack every woman in the film. Oh, Henrik, you're impossible. But, but also <laughs> correct. M- most of all, correct. Yeah, but also needs to be said that, that while the diamond mine is fake, the lasers are real. Or are they? No. Some yeah, they are. The, the lasers are supposed to be real. They are supposed to be, but they are not. Meanwhile, James Bond is taking a dip, goes under, under ice, swims, and then apparently resurfaces in a lagoon. Yeah. Once again, feeling no effect from all the coldness, like swimming in ice cold water, which is something that really bothered me throughout the Iceland scene. Basically, the clothes everyone is wearing, like this is supposed to be Iceland, they are in Ice Palace, and what we see here is, is Bond swimming in ice cold water, that has no effect. Inside the ice palace, everyone is is wearing tuxedos and evening dresses, <laughs> and fucking nothing happens. And when when Jinx is you doing her sneak up, she's wearing a skin tight leather outfit. And w- once again, it's it's an it's 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 in Iceland. It's in the middle of an ice palace. Hey hey, if if you want a really stupid ice swimming scene, just look no further than Skyfall, and as it seems, also no time to die as it happens. Yeah, at the very end, James Bond resurfaces under the ice. 
That's Beyond the Eyes. That should have been the title for that one. I, I don't know. It, it, it was somewhat more believable than Die Another, Another Day's Ice Palace antics. Uh, yeah, at, at, at least at least Daniel Craig, he has enough in him to to look like that he is feeling at least a slight chill. Uh, but how about when it comes to this Die Another Day's lines, who like this, who sent you? Your mama. Yeah, your mama jokes. Oh uh, yeah, that's in James Bond film. Yeah, that's not good yeah. at all. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thumbs down from me. I think I was fourteen, thirteen, fifteen, something. When I saw this for the first time, even I was like slapping my my face. What's going on here? But but kudos for this one being at at least to my recollection the only Bond film where 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 the lady is being tortured by someone groping her teeth. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Jinx is being tortured by Zhao, who who uses that electricity glove thing to do to shock her. And just take a look. What is the part of the body where that Zhao is touching? Like you you have every other place, but but you're precisely using the opportunity to grope Halliburton's teeth. <laughs> And that's the only time I've seen that one in Bond film. But you know what else Halliburton is groping here? He's groping off the. Hand of the bad guy. Actually, the the dark-looking bad guy is playing the main orc in the Lord of the Rings. Really? That's right. I believe he has a name. I'm just too lazy to look it up right now. <laughs> Can I just break the subject for just a moment? Break me. Try me. So, according to a website called Screen Rant, the villain in No Time to Die is secretly Doctor No. I don't think that's gonna happen. Well, I will link you to the article, and I will... Uh, that's the theory, at least. Yeah, there's a lot of theories. Every time. Let's just see the film and see what happens. That sounds like a stupid idea. Well, I mean, didn't Dr. No, like, drown or boil to death? But this bad guy already has a name. Right? Yeah, Safin. Safin, yeah. But but he wears a mask. And? And under the mask is Dr. No, <laughs> according to the theory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting. Uh, Henrik, what do you think <laughs> about this one? I really don't have any opinion. I <laughs> I haven't been following No Time to Die's production, and I I these days I I won't take part in any hype that goes around any movie franchise. So in, in by that regard, I I ha- don't have any pre-made opinion on, on on the matter it I'm, i'm willing to see it how it plays out wh- when the film finally comes out i'm i'm relatively okay even with that with the twist like if it turns out that rami malek's character is supposed to be dr no i i'm willing to be cool with that just as long as the film itself is is good enough I'm doubtful and I have zero expectations. Ever since Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997, there has been only one good. And, well, even even Casino Royale has a lot of problems. But Casino Royale is the only good film after GoldenEye. So I ha- I don't really even care at this point. What is and the, the, this this comes from a man who, who is willing, willing to put... Yeah. Die, die another day in the in in just some of his my my top favorites of the code and I. 
for Brosnan, unfortunately, it's a terrible run, and this should tell, tell to you about the quality level of these films for Brosnan. This should be should, should be telling everybody the quality levels of Carl here in the studios. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, hey, what's next? There is this when uh, now Eden Project is infiltrated by James Bond and he's pointing the gun at Gustav Graves. James Bond reemerges, reappears behind this computer that closes itself and reveals James Bond. And this scene has some decent dialogue from Gustav Graves, kind of breaking down the mentality of the James Bond character. But James Bond, only things he has to say is one-liners. Gustav Graves says, We only met briefly, you and I, but you left a lasting impression. You see, when your intervention forced me to present the world with a new face, I chose to model the disgusting Gustav Graves on you. Oh, just in the details. That unjustifiable swagger. Your grass quips a defense mechanism concealing such inadequacy. And here's my defense mechanism. Yeah, quip after quip after quip. Which proves my point. Yeah, there's too many of them. Just that's the point. It's just James Bond trying to be cool for two hours. Desperately. It's a good combination of quality and quantity. And looking at all these Brosnan films, I have to say also that James Bond, Pierce Brosnan's acting as James Bond is the best at GoldenEye. After that, he becomes too cocky. I just don't get anything out of the character. Yeah, okay, well, the script also doesn't give him many ways to maneuver. But that cocky face that he puts on. Don't know if it's only Brosnan or it's some kind of a directorial instruction. And I still don't know what Pierce Brosnan's James Bond really stands for. Because they never made anything with Pierce Brosnan. The best effort is in GoldenEye. They never pushed the character. Quite telling is, by the way, when Pierce Brosnan said that the thing that he was holding on to as like a guideline of the character of James Bond, if any, is the beach scene in GoldenEye, where you have this small, tiny, tiny glimpse at the character of James Bond. There's nothing else. But hey, since I'm babbling so much on my own here, let's cut to the CGI <laughs> Wonderlords. So James Bond escapes with this whatever it is, and Gustav Grace is following him with this laser device called Icarus. It's time to draw the line, and the CGI starts floating. They're cutting the CGI ice, Bond jumps off, and uh, rides on the waves, survives. Yeah, this was really stupid. Yeah, I can't believe they were working for, what, like five months? Working on these ice cubes and the water, and they still yeah. couldn't quite get it right. And the, I think the problem is that they are just using CGI. Everything is CGI. Except Brosnan. And these action sequences should be better built around the the type of character of Pierce Brosnan's Bond. Like this this movie starts off already with this surfing. Now there's more surfing. And I don't buy it. But to do that you would have to define what is the character of Brosnan's Bond. Which they don't do, yeah. Yeah. But you know his physicality, his physical appearance. That's something to go with, right? I don't know, they they do that more in Daniel Craig era. They certainly do. We have the invisible car, we have the invisible car versus Jaguar of Zaos. And they do their thing with their missiles, I really basically have nothing to comment on this, except that it's a high-octane, well-performed action scene that I really don't care for in any way. It's an action scene where Bond takes a direct missile hit, and that has no effect on his magic car. 
Yeah, and then the ice ice palace is starting to melt. There's water all over the place, and car stuff, car stuff, car stuff, car stuff, and then Zhao gets killed. And there's no quip after Zhao gets killed. Thank God. And ice palace is gone. Then James Bond saves Jinx, puts him into the bath, wakes her up, and we get to the South Korean military base run by the U.S. And Michael Madsen giving commands to South Korean soldiers, which the South Koreans really didn't like at all. North Koreans had their <laughs> kind of problems with this film as well. And James Bond and Halle Berry, yeah, I'm just gonna call her Halle Berry, are using this latest military technology, whatever this device was. It, it, it's, it's called Switchblade. Like. Right, that one. Yeah, and it's, it's modeled after fast, like P-H-A- SST, which is some kind of a real-life one-man maneuverable glider meant mostly for the military use. Yeah, to avoid the radar. And so they do enter North Korea. US try to destroy the... Or the US and South Korean troops are trying to destroy the, 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 the Icarus but fail because missile explodes. Now, mystically, James Bond and Halle Berry are able to infiltrate this airstrip in North Korea and nobody's shooting at them when they enter the plane. They enter no problem, nobody notices and the film reaches its stupidity peak, I think here, in the plane. But before that we do have this kind of emotional dramatic discussion between father and son and the son kills father. Yeah, Gustav Graves has at some point he has decided to turn himself into Megal Hitler from from the Wolfenstein game series. Yeah, but this scene kind of made me feel quite sorry for a North Korean dictator, actually. Yeah, I, I, I had the same effect. Well, this is what they always wanted, so why is the father not going with it? Just go with it and create your great path and destroy the South Korean military and wage a World War Three. Go for it, go for it, do it. I'm all the way on Gustav Graves' side here. Do well, what you're well, set out to do. Well, the father does not want that. He doesn't, but it doesn't make any sense because that's kind of the MO of the North Korea to take South Korea back. So there you go. Your your son has been making this genius idea, so go for it. Well, well, the, in, in the beginning of the film, the film, once again, it tries to be nuanced. So so the daddy gets gets a line about how, how the forced unification of two Koreas would be something that, that only the radicals in North Korea want. The ra- radical military leadership once. And that's just not the person that the dad is. And in the dad's defense, I have to ask, who the fuck would actually want to take over South Korea? North Korea. Well, why? Ego. Be- 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 because because action movie bad guys, yeah. Because but, real life, yeah. Well, not really real life. Like, like in, in real life, taking over South Korea doesn't really make that much sense. It makes sense if you have a huge satellite which which you can destroy all the South Korean forces at once. No, no, it fucking doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. I'm, I mean, sure, you can take over South Korea with your huge-ass fucking satellite, by, but but taking over South Korea would be kind of a... You, you would be risking shooting your own foot right. by taking over South Korea. Right. There's a real-life possibility that if North North would take over South... They would be digging their own graves by that with that act. I know. So, 
So logic-wise, taking over South Korea does not make any goddamn sense except in in maybe action movie bad guy logic. Mm, which kind of this film sort of kind of reflects real life sometimes of the North Korean behavior. Yeah, at, at, at what point? When when Gustav Grace Shoot. becomes mega Hitler in plastic battle with combat armor. Shooting missiles at South Korea. Shelling South Korean islands. Shelling South Korea and shooting missiles and actively trying to take it over. They are two, two completely different things. Like, like missile strike is, is a goddamn act of a military aggression. And it can stay on that level also. It, it's still not an active attempt to take over over South Korea and have South Korea invaded. Yeah, it's as stupid as their rhetoric, so what can I say? But but it's not re- necessarily really their rhetoric. Like, they, like, the North Korean rhetoric very much can still be just, just tied into the, them wanting to do, a, do an act of military aggression every now and then and try to reach the nuclear power state. Whichever the case, why they are using that kind of a language, that's the language that they're using. And I kind of enjoy when it's happening in this film that what they're actually saying is coming into fruition and they are being destructive as hell. It, it, well, well, yeah, once again, a notion that kind of only makes sense in, in Die Another Day. Yeah. And, and action movie world. Right. But this is like standing behind your words. It's, it's. What what it essentially is, it is Western idea, a Western perspective and Western image on what North Korea would want. No, nope. and that's all. Like like this is this is this isn't any kind of a intake on North Korea and any any kind of a depiction of of North Korean mentality or basically anything that has to do with North Korea and real reality necessarily. Gustav Graves falls into the turbines of the plane. Yeah, because the, the fucking dumbnut for some odd reason had decided to put into his combat armor a button that electrocutes him. <laughs> like seriously? What the fuck? And then there is the release of the parachute. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's first first there's the release of the parachute, and then Bond pushes the button that gives Gustav Graves electric shocks. Because that's something that you wanna put into your mega Hitler combat armor. But hey, at least it it has the line time to face gravity. Yeah, so everything explodes, boom, 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 and Bond and Barry take the helicopter, and boom, 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 a Lamborghini in the swamp, boom, 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 and then cut to. Back to MI6, and uh, there's some virtual reality stuff going on with Moneypenny and James Bond. This is apparently the, yeah, this is apparently the great scene that the James Bond ha- fans have been waiting for, which I have not, especially when it's kind of a virtual reality video game. Yeah, and it is quite problematic for also for the character of Moneypenny, who no for kidding. the first time in 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 her character history is played as a joke. Yeah, look at this and look at Goldeneye, introduction of this character. Yup. Two, oh, 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 oh. two, two completely different words. And it also begs the question, since, since Moneypenny's blouse is, is open, like, like the, the top three buttons are open, who actually opened those buttons? She. 
well, is it is it really she or or is it Q? It has has Q <laughs> been perving on the premises this entire time? Well, she he gives such a confused look at Money Penny that I think no. But it's a good theory. Then we got back to the UK, which is supposed to be South Korea. Filmed in Penburn Beach, Cardigan, Wales. And here we have this horrific quality dialogue to finish the film off. I'm so good, especially when you're bad. Roll credits. That was Die Another Day. Yeah, yeah, and credits and return of the awful techno sounds. <laughs> Henrik just doesn't know. He doesn't know in in betweens. He's, he's working on absolutes in this episode, and I don't get why. This is the second best Brosnan it, film. It, it, it's, it's because, unlike the two dumb nuts that you are, I actually have some class and quality. Aha, aha, aha. You have class and quality when you want to show it. It wasn't forthcoming in this episode. Oh, <laughs> shots well, fired. Well, well, shots fired, but you know, man, I, I, I'm not gonna show class and quality to a piece of shit. Oh, like if 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 you wanna do if you wanna do that, you can take your podcast to a modern art museum. Somebody needs a holiday. Oh, <laughs> jeez. So, 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 somebody need, need needs to have Pierce Brosnan era of James Bond finally done with, which thank God we are now reaching that point. And, 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 you know, you know, to take this even further, even further, even, 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 even with all the mean things that I've said, Prostan, and, and with all the loathing I have towards Die Another Day, I do still maintain that I do like Prostan more than Roger Moore. Yep. Mm. I can accept that. But I still can upset that you would be watching The World Is Not Enough rather than this. So, yeah. Oh boy. He's a forced villain where you have to have some kind of a gimmick once again. This guy who doesn't feel any pain. Uh, and yeah, he's not... yeah. I, I, I don't like Gustav Gravis, the Asian guy who became white. I'm not saying anything <laughs> about that. These are all shit villains. May I once again reiterate, these are all shit films apart from excluding Goldeneye. These have been shit villains for a long time. The last good villain here was 006 in Goldeneye. Tomorrow Never Dies, we have this media mogul uh, Elliot Carver. It's so caricaturic, it's hard to watch, it's so cringy. Yep, it it is, it is. Everybody has a a signifying word in them. Dr. No did not have hands. Goldfinger was fat. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah, and and the dudes in in Live and Let Die were black. And which one would you rather watch? Would you watch Oddjob, Goldfinger, or Gustav Graves with his quirks? That's, that's Goldfinger, kind of the definitely. Yeah. Bottom yeah. line. Fuck Graves. Fuck Graves. Graves. Graves is a is a character and. And a performance, which actually years later made me really surprised when I found out that Toby Stevens, who pre- plays Gustav Graves here in, in Guy Another Day, is actually capable of pulling off a bad guy role. Not here. He's a good actor. Um, well, he... He, 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 was, he, was, he was surprisingly good in Black Sails. 
where he actually managed to be a bad guy. But that was really surprising after, you know, first coming in terms with the dude in, in Die Another Day, where he... Yeah, this, these two cringing, uh, cocky motherfuckers, James Bond and Gustav Graves. Uh, it's hard to watch. Favorite scene, guys. My favorite scene is the pre-titles sequence with the hovercrafts, I suppose. I, I, I like the moment when Gustav Graves gets electrocuted by his own battle suit. <laughs> yeah, any favorite shots? Well, there really ain't one. Well, well or actually... maybe, 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 maybe that one shot when when Bond is is escaping the the tidal wave and and there is there is that 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 blue screen shot when Bond is pulling the strings on the parachute and and he's basically eye fucking the audience with the blue screen. That's pretty good cinematography. That's no no it's it's, it's, it's shit cinematography. No 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 no. It's, it's, it's really it's, no, it's, no, it's, no 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 no. It is and the CGI makes it even worse. Bullshit. Bullshit. Like holy bullshit. The world is not enough. There's your there's your shit cinematography. Well, the guy it, it, who even, does even, cinematography even, knows exactly even, what he's doing. Even, even, it even has the great, great continuity. Enough. Wasn't as bad as that moment in this film. The shot sizes, how it's composed, they are fine. I don't know. What, no, why are we complaining? No, no. What, no. what are you compa- complaining about the DP here? Come on. <laughs> you know, it's technically the best fucking DP in the fucking whole Brosnan era. Hands down. No, it's not. Based on what? <laughs> based on based on all, all the insufferable scenes that we actually have here. It's not the fault of works. DP. When, when it's nothing not the fault works. of DP. When nothing works. The DP, the, the DP doesn't the work thing with the CGI. The CGI here. doesn't work with anything. The audiences don't, don't, don't work with the film. The script Fucking doesn't hell. work Fucking with hell. the logic, and and go, that go. It, that that all comes into highlight in some scenes of the of the film. Go back to the Eden shots. Go back to the Eden shots. Tell me that they're go, not go back to the Eden shots. Go, go, go back to the shots that I, I personally cherry-picked to show you how great the fucking DP is here and then use those those cherry-picked shots to make the case that, that the DP is good all together throughout the film. Now you're mixing... Now you're mixing plot and the script with the DP. The DP I, has I, nothing I, to do I, with I, the I, shit I, show I'm, here. I I I I'm, I'm taking the DP from the scenes where the DP is mixed with the CGI that doesn't work. One of great examples is when Gustav Graves and James Bond are discussing about the inadequacy in the in the room where you have the glass floor in the Eden. So that's that's good DPing. It's a good space as well, so it helps. A, a, it looks an- good. Another another really good se- sequence, like a good example of the greatness of the DP in 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 this film is is precisely that blue screen moment when when Bond is trying to outrun the waves. And how much of control does a DP have in a scene that is mainly run by CGI? I would say not much. Well, I, I would still say that the DP ain't that great in that moment. Okay, like, like you, you, you are, you are I'm the not one talking who about go, the bullshit scenes. You, 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 are, you are the one who, here, here who go, goes on, on, on about DB and how good the DB is and, and the DB's relationship to everything that happens in the scene and yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it doesn't work in that scene. Like, like, like you, can, you, can make, you can make the argument that the CGI overruns the DB. And the DP can't work with the CGI because the CGI is so prominent in that scene. But the fact still is 
that all together everything in the, nothing in that scene works. It looks atrocious. And the fucking DP doesn't manage to anyway salvage the scene. Somebody needs to get the fuck out of this podcast for a while. Me included. Favorite quote. To, to, to me, to me, it is it, it is when Bond is, is once again meeting with Am, and Am makes the case that while you were away, the world changed, and Bond remarks back, not for me, which actually sounds very true, because Bond most definitely did not change with this film. <laughs> I'll just go with the time to face gravity, favorite kill. All the kills are bad, yeah. for the bad kills it's the one that is most hilarious and that is Graves, who once again gets electrocuted by his own goddamn Mega Hitler power armor. I don't really have a um, favorite kill. There's no, mem- there's no memorable kills in this film. No, no, and even getting rid of Graves is really bafflingly stupid. But it's the most memorable kill. Still, uh, 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 whatever, favorite kill, I guess that's done. That random confusing question, Henrik. Do, do you want to ask something, something about the DP? <laughs> Case is closed. <laughs> and you are closed <laughs> from this podcast <laughs> for 30 days. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> First carcass that comes to your home door but but that still still kind of works as a good bridge to the following question what is the first image that comes to your mind curry first image that comes to my mind is yeah yeah what 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 image had the dp that talked to you the most the the dp image that talked to me the most was the one where i came to rovaniemi to henrik's house and did some dude And that's my answer. <laughs> yeah? Take it or leave it. <laughs> but fine, I'm taking it. Well, can we move <laughs> on? Fuck you too, man. <laughs> Tom? My, 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 my first image, my first image is, is the close-up on Bond's fa- face when he's ejaculating all over the audience's eyes when he's escaping that, that goddamn wave. There's some really good DP on that moment. Like, you, you can really, really feel the thrust. That's good for you. <laughs> what took you out? Mm. Everything. D- does that also include the DP? Except the DP. <laughs> and some of the action. And the pre-title sequence. And the gritty moments. I just don't think the storyline was that interesting. No. Yup. Yeah. Yup, and and they added on extreme <coughs> sports elements. What pulled you in? And credits because it was finally over. The great quips kept me going. David Arnold kept me going for maybe the first half of the film, and then it's just a meaningless techno mambo champo that doesn't doesn't really have doesn't really do anything for me. There's some good so, good music in this, and then there's also some pretty bad music in this. <sighs> What would you change in the film, Scissors of Sacrilege? I would <coughs> get rid of Halle Berry and insert somebody more wow. aesthetically pleasing. Wow, that's an unpopular opinion, I guess. Uh, no, I don't think it is unpopular. I, I, I would just burn the film and then I would burn the studio. I would trash can this film, burn it several times over 
And then I would give the same script to Henrik and let him be also the DP. <laughs> and it would still be a better film. Like, I, I, can, I can already promise that much to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You really know you're watching Die Another Day. When when you try to analyze this, 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 this. <laughs> uh, you really know you're watching Die Another Day when you just want to end it after 27 minutes in. This is, there's nothing there, it's an empty shell. This is not a spy film you know, on any level. It's so far removed from James Bond. Or what makes James Bond work for me. Uh, can I go back to the question uh, what took you out because i because ha- because yeah. i haven't i have a new answer yeah you know your mother joke should not be used in james bond films or actually ever in any film at all no terrible that's kind of like a red line that you don't cross anything about do you really know you're watching die another day when when you don't get a boner when looking at the james bond girl <laughs> <laughs> straightforward as ever yeah, that, that, that was an experience you most definitely did not have with GoldenEye. Goddamn Funky Chance. <clears throat> I just asked from my brother and he said that Funky Funk Chansen is one of the most annoying Bond girls in the history of the franchise. Really? Yeah, well, you know, you, you, can, you can tell your brother that he is the most annoying bastard that you have ever interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah. with, with love and records from your co-host and the Flick Lab staff. Shots fired all around. I'm gonna burn this laboratory <laughs> down any minute. Happy, happy fucking New Year, Scottish brother. I'm going through the lines at you soon enough. Three adjectives to describe the film. Mm, lackluster. Funny. And I mean, cheap. Lazy. Idiotic. <laughs> Boring. Uh, embarrassing ill-conceived and franchise-killing, because this most definitely fucking was... It was still the most successful James Bond film up until this moment. Yep. So. But, but, but still still needed to, to reboot over 20 years of history. Yeah, like, where do you go from Diana today? You definitely don't go and jinx it all up and do a jinx spin-off. Thank God they didn't do that. But, you know, uh, and maybe Halle Berry's career would have been revitalized by having to make a Jinx film. Like he well, would have how, needed how, to do Gothica. How in the hell would have that been the case? Because in, in this film, Jinx is nothing nothing but a character who gets gets captured captured and needs to be saved by Bond. It's a joke. Like Jinx, Jinx gets captured, is saved by Bond. Three minutes later, actually three minutes later, She's captured again and once again needs to be saved by Bond. I just can't imagine what the film franchise or the spin-off franchise with Jinx would have been like. Like the yeah. adventure, adventures of the most incapable lady ever. Yeah. I heard a rumor that they were trying to do also a Wylin spin-off from Tomorrow Never Dies. Thankfully none of them, this happened. And MGM pulled the plug on Jinx, the, the movie. Oh my god. Yeah, Barbara Broccoli was apparently furious that they couldn't make this film. And my MGM just told them point blank, let's please, please guys, just concentrate on on the essence here. Concentrate on your next Bond film. Oh, did you look at your watch? Yes, I did. And I had to watch this film in two parts. I actually did more than look at my watch. I actually fell asleep. <laughs> I, I actually didn't check, check my watch and I managed to watch the film in one part. But do you know, guys, that this was actually... 
When this came out, there was a lot of reviewers that felt that this was the best James Bond film in a long time. Like revitalized, re-energetic. People were quite split on this. It's quite hard to believe. So which film are we doing next? Is it Casino Royale? Yes, it is. Oh, wow. I actually saw that last night. Okay, lucky you. Good call. You just yeah. saved yourself some work in 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 the future. Uh, I will watch it again. But Tom Franklin, would you recommend Diana today? Um, no, I wouldn't go out of my way to recommend this film. If I was recommending a James Bond film to a guy who hasn't seen any of the films, it would not be this one. I can guarantee you that. Nope, nope, nope. And can I just say, every James Bond film that I've purchased off, off iTunes has cost around £9, and this one was £2 cheaper for some reason. Now, I, I don't know whether that's because the film is so shit or what. Well, more than likely. Henrik, would you recommend Diana today? Hell no! Because I just don't know. Hell to the no! No to the hell! Like, fuck, avoid this one like the plague. This, despite, despite what Kari has said about Brosnan's run, you know, I, I, I'm gonna say what any other Brosnan Bond than this one. Even though if if they are not really that good, this is definitely the worst Bond that Brosnan hailed. This is hands down one of the worst Bonds altogether. This is the film that when it finally. Got got out, e- even though it did make money, even though the critics at the time did like it. W- after that first first reactions were over with, the situation turned so hostile that after twenty years of 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 canon franchise, there the the whole fucking thing had to be rebooted. And watching it today, I can really strongly see why why MGM felt like the reboot was necessary. And I can say that it was most definitely the right call to make. Like like the the landscape that that die another day left on its wake was unsalvageable. And the only reason that they rebooted it is was is that it was trendy at the time. Once again, like Diana Day was following the trends, and I Casino Royale is following the trends. I didn't warm warm up to the idea of rebooting Bond, and I still don't know what to really think about it. But at least it's a good film. It it was most definitely it was the right call to make. Like as of, after this one, the crown was burned. And the bridges had all, 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 all been exploded to pizza like that. There was. You really came into a rock solid dead end with Die Another Day. In the sense of rebooting, uh, like how the character is. Yeah, that, that was a good call. But in the sense of rebooting the whole timeline, eh, not a big fan of that. And not also the fan of the continuity that they have in Daniel Craig films. Trying to ham fistedly. Put them all together, but that's the story for another episode, dear listener. Just, just you know, as a closing word, just re- bear, bear in mind that had they not rebooted the entire franchise, like the entire timeline, in that case, Daniel Craig's Bond films would have uh, had to acknowledge that Die Another Day exists in the timeline. <laughs> and with those words, I'm done. And craving for some more tea. Mm-hmm. Yup, thank God. Here's Brosnan's run.
with the character was. Here it's over, it's done. And the next time on, on, on the Bond Marathon we actually get something completely new. <laughs> but hey, that was not fun at all. And I need to clean up really? this, this movie with some half a bottle of scotch and some better film. I like this podcast, this episode. <laughs> you must be joking. I never joke about my podcasts. When you first said we were doing this episode, I was like, well, what can I possibly say about a film that's so bad? Like, But it actually turned out to be fun, quite fun. Yeah, Henrik likes the challenge. Occasionally, yeah. But I'm guessing I'm speaking for myself because uh, you guys acted as if you were going through, like, torture. <laughs> no, I have no idea what's been happening throughout the three and a half hours we've been recording. I have to check it later. This has been quite exhausting. But hopefully somebody likes to listen to it and you can find us on social media and blah, 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 blah. Thank you. Good night. Uh, well, Henrik just messaged me and said your opinions on James Bond is evil. Rock solid, dead end.